Mary Surratt had been sentenced to die by a military tribunal on June 30, 1865, though she didn't believe it would really happen. No woman had ever been executed in the United States, and her crimes were too inconsequential to warrant making her the first. She was a Confederate sympathizer who had allowed Abraham Lincoln's assassins to meet and conspire in her tavern. But she wasn't personally involved in the plot at all. But a week later, on July 7th, at 1 p.m., the executioner, Captain Christian Rath, led Surratt to the gallows, along with three other prisoners who had been sentenced to death. Rath was surprised to see Mary among the condemned. He asked his superior officer, Her too? The officer replied, Yes, she cannot be saved. The temperature was nearly 100 degrees, and Surratt could feel her dress sticking to her sweat-soaked skin. As the soldiers led her to the noose, she finally understood that it was really happening. She would have to pay for her complicity with her life. Fearing she would faint, she pleaded with the soldiers, don't let me fall. At 1.26 p.m., David Harold, George Atzerott, Lewis Powell, and Mary Surratt were executed for conspiring to murder President Abraham Lincoln. Surratt would be remembered as the first woman ever sentenced to death by the United States government. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our final episode on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. This week, we'll discuss the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth, along with the implications of Lincoln's death on United States policy and culture. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. On the morning of April 15, 1865, the United States government was thrown into chaos. Over the course of the previous night, President Abraham Lincoln had been shot and killed, and the Secretary of State, William Seward, was severely injured in a related stabbing. At 10 a.m., 11 officials, including lawyers, senators, and cabinet members, arrived at Vice President Andrew Johnson's room in Kirkwood House Hotel. The U.S. Attorney General, James Speed, handed Johnson a letter that read, quote, By the death of President Lincoln, the office of president has devolved, under the Constitution, upon you. The mood was somber when Johnson took the oath of office in his hotel room with only the 11 visitors as witnesses. After he took his oath, Johnson addressed the gathered officials saying, quote, Gentlemen, 
I must be permitted to say that I have been almost overwhelmed by the announcement of the sad event which has so recently occurred. Let me say that I want your encouragement and countenance. I ask and rely on you and others in carrying the government through its present perils. In the hours after Lincoln was shot, the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, began an investigation. Eyewitness statements quickly confirmed that John Wilkes Booth had shot Lincoln. Stanton sent men to search the room where Booth was staying, and they found numerous letters regarding the assassination plot, as well as his previous plan to kidnap the president. These letters confirmed that Booth hadn't acted alone. The next challenge was to find and arrest Booth and all his co-conspirators. John Wilkes Booth had broken his leg when he jumped from the presidential box at Ford's Theater. Once the adrenaline rush wore off, the pain left him unable to ride a horse. In spite of his anxiety to escape to the southern states, where Booth believed he'd be welcomed as a hero, he had no choice but to seek medical treatment just outside of Washington, D.C. Accompanied by another conspirator, David Harold, Booth arrived at the home of Dr. Samuel Mudd very early on the morning of April 15th. Booth gave a fake name and wore a fake beard to disguise himself. Although Booth and Mudd had met before, Mudd gave no indication that he recognized Booth. He set the broken leg in a splint and allowed Booth and Harold to stay over in his home. They were still asleep when, later that morning, Dr. Mudd went to town to handle some errands. He left his wife behind to keep an eye on them. When Mudd got into Washington, D.C., he found the city buzzing with the news of what had happened the night before. As soon as he heard that John Wilkes Booth had killed Abraham Lincoln, he immediately realized exactly who was staying at his home and why. Now that Mudd knew the truth, he had a choice to make. If he reported Booth's location to the police, they would go straight to his home, and the confrontation could turn violent while Mudd's wife was still there. Instead, he opted to quietly handle the issue on his own. During his 15-mile journey home from D.C., Mudd worked himself into a rage. As soon as he got back, he confronted Booth, berating him for his treachery and for putting him and his family in danger. Booth had nothing to say for himself. He agreed to leave Mudd's home, but also begged the doctor not to turn him in. Even when caught in a lie, Booth was charming and persuasive. Mudd agreed not to talk to the police. While Booth's leg was set in a splint, he was still in severe pain. He and Harold rode for three painful hours until they reached the home of Samuel Cox, a local farmer and Confederate sympathizer. Cox had heard about the assassination and he knew who the two men were, but Harold bribed him into allowing them to stay for the night. The next day, April 16th, Cox put Booth and Harold in contact with his foster brother, a former Confederate secret agent named Thomas A. Jones. Jones wasn't involved with the plot to kill Lincoln, but he agreed to help the two men escape to Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. Jones accompanied Booth and Harold for the next leg of their journey, but the next night, he returned to his own home alone for the night. 
He wouldn't let the fugitives stay over with him in case the police happened to stop by and discover them. Booth and Harold were on their own. The conspirators failed to find a place to stay, so they made a campsite and slept in the woods. It was two days after the assassination, and they were still barely outside Washington, D.C. Booth's broken leg was only getting worse, and he was afraid he wouldn't be able to travel much further. Jones advised the fugitives that it was impractical to keep their horses. They had limited food and water, and Booth's injury made riding impossible anyway. Not to mention, the horses' nays drew unwanted attention. Harold marched the horses into the swamp water and shot them both in the head, killing them. Meanwhile, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton's investigation was closing in. He made his first arrest that same day, April 17th. Stanton identified Edmund Spangler as the man who had watched Booth's horse while he went inside Ford's theater. Spangler was arrested for assisting Booth in his escape. Spangler admitted that he watched Booth's horse, but he insisted he had no idea what Booth was up to. He just happened to run into Booth outside the theater that night and agreed to help him as a favor to a friend. Stanton didn't buy it. The same day, Stanton arrested Samuel Arnold and Michael O'Laughlin, who had been seen meeting with Booth in the weeks leading up to Lincoln's death. Neither man had any involvement in the assassination, but during questioning, Arnold confessed to his involvement in the previous conspiracy to kidnap Lincoln and hold him as a prisoner of war. Arnold also provided key information to help identify Booth's other collaborators. Stanton's men knew that Booth was a frequent guest at the tavern owned and operated by Mary Surratt. While Stanton knew that Surratt may have been connected to the assassination plot, he wasn't certain how much she knew. He sent several men to her tavern to question her. Surratt wasn't willing to talk, but even if she was, she wouldn't have had much information to give. She'd met with Booth and Harold when they stopped by on the night of April 14th, but she'd had no contact with George Atzerodt or William Powell since before the assassination. Lewis Powell had stabbed Secretary of State William Seward and multiple members of his family, but he didn't know how to find Surratt's tavern afterward. He spent three nights hiding out in the woods outside Washington, D.C., unable to wash himself or change his clothes. He finally found the tavern around 11.45 on the night of April 17th. He walked in, still covered in blood, to find Mary Surratt being questioned by federal authorities. The investigators asked who he was and why he was there. Powell claimed that his name was Louis Payne and that Mary Surratt had hired him to dig a drain. The investigators asked Mary for confirmation. She announced, quote, Before God, sir, I do not know this man, and I have never seen him before, and I did not hire him to come and dig a gutter for me. She was probably hoping to confirm her own innocence by distancing herself from Powell. But the conflicting stories only served as evidence that both parties were lying. Mary Surratt and Lewis Powell were both arrested. That same night, while Booth and Harold were still camped in the woods outside of Washington, D.C., Booth began writing his thoughts in an appointment book he carried with him. 
He described his thoughts as he killed President Lincoln. Quote, I shouted sick semper before I fired. In jumping broke my leg. I passed all his pickets, rode 60 miles that night with the bone of my leg tearing the flesh at every jump. I can never repent it, though we hated to kill. Booth believed he would be hailed as a hero for killing Lincoln. When his fantasies proved false, he grew frustrated. In an entry dated April 21st, Booth wrote, quote, After being hunted like a dog through swamps, woods, and last night being chased by gunboats till I was forced to return, wet, cold, and starving, with every man's hand against me, I am here in despair. And why? I hoped for no gain. I knew no private wrong. I struck for my country, and that alone. Injured, exhausted, and the target of a massive manhunt, Booth was forced to recognize that he may have been wrong. He would be remembered as the villain in this story, and Lincoln would become the martyred hero. Coming up, we'll discuss Edwin Stanton's continued investigations, the arrest of John Wilkes Booth's collaborators, and Booth's final days. Now, back to the story. George Atzerodt didn't go through with his orders to murder Vice President Andrew Johnson on April 14, 1865. However, he still raised suspicion when he asked a bartender at the Kirkwood House Hotel if he knew where Johnson was. The bartender found his question odd, and when the news broke about Lincoln's murder, he reported it to the investigators. On Thursday, April 20th, five days after Lincoln's death, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton tracked Atzerodt to his cousin's home in Germantown, Maryland. Atzerodt was asleep when Union soldiers assembled in his bedroom at 5 a.m. Afraid that Atzerodt might be dangerous, a soldier leveled his gun at Atzerodt's head and shook him awake. Atzerodt agreed to go peacefully with the soldiers. That same night, on April 20th, Booth and Harold realized they couldn't hide out in the woods any longer. It was a cloudy night, and a chilly fog provided them with enough cover to try and cross the Potomac River. Booth and Harold crept through the woods, guided by former Confederate secret agent Thomas Jones, who had returned to help them once again. As they passed Jones' home, Booth, who hadn't been indoors for four days, begged to stop. He pled, quote, Please let me go to the house and get some of your hot coffee. Jones refused. They couldn't afford to delay, and he was already putting himself in enough danger by helping the fugitives cross the river. Jones gave the men a boat, but refused to accept cash for his assistance. He was helping them because he believed in the Southern cause. Booth and Harold couldn't cut directly across the river because of the frequent Union patrols on both sides. Instead, they would need to navigate for several miles until they found a secluded place to disembark. Booth held a candle and a compass, giving directions to Harold while he rode. When they spotted a Union ship up ahead, they abruptly turned back, afraid of getting caught. They waited out in the woods for another two days then attempted another crossing on April 22nd. This time, they were successful. 
After over a week on the run, Booth and Harold were finally back in the South and certain that their troubles were over. But news of Lincoln's assassination had reached Virginia before Booth and Harold did. The men found that even Virginia residents who supported Booth's actions were unwilling to help them out of fear they'd be arrested for collaboration. Thus, Harold and Booth traveled from house to house, trying to find a place to sleep. Finally, on April 24th, they arrived at Richard Garrett's farm. When they arrived, Booth mustered up his acting skills and claimed to be a wounded Confederate soldier. Garrett agreed to let the two men stay with him. He was a devoted Confederate sympathizer, and more importantly, he still hadn't heard about Lincoln's death. The very next day, Garrett's son, Jack, went into town and heard the news about the assassination. He also learned that the Secretary of War had offered a significant reward for information resulting in the capture of Booth and his collaborators. The $50,000 offered for Booth alone would be the equivalent of more than $750,000 in 2019. When Jack told the news to his father, they both grew suspicious of their guests, but not suspicious enough to take any action. It seemed too great a coincidence for the most wanted man in America to show up at their door. However, the farmers were eager for Booth and Harold to leave their home. They were too skittish not to be in some sort of trouble. Jack figured the guests, whoever they might be, were evading Union soldiers, and he was afraid they might steal the family horses to escape. That evening, Jack told Booth that he needed to leave. Booth protested that he was too injured to walk and had no access to a carriage. The men compromised, and the Garretts allowed Booth and Harold to sleep in the family's barn out back. In the early morning of April 26th, Stanton's men finally tracked Booth and Harold to Garrett's farm. The soldiers began by questioning Richard Garrett, but they were a bit too aggressive, and Garrett found himself too intimidated to answer. The soldiers threatened to hang Richard as a traitor if he didn't tell them what he knew. As Richard stammered an answer, his son Jack came out of the house and said, quote, don't injure father. I will tell you about these men. They are in the barn. As soldiers circled the barn, Booth heard the commotion and woke Harold. Booth said, quote, don't make any noise. Maybe they will go off thinking we are not here. The Union soldiers, led by an agent of the War Department named Lafayette Baker, weren't so easily deterred. Baker didn't know if Booth and Harold were armed, and he didn't want to risk his men's safety by entering the barn. Instead, he yelled to them from the outside, ordering the men to surrender. Booth and Harold refused. Baker told Jack Garrett to go into the barn and talk to them. He suspected that Booth wouldn't harm the man who had housed him for two days. Jack wasn't so confident about that, but Baker forced him into the barn at gunpoint. When Booth saw Jack appearing to cooperate with the Union soldiers, he shouted, quote, damn you, you have betrayed me, end quote. Jack tried to reason with him, arguing that it was too late for Booth to escape and his best chance of surviving was to turn himself in. Booth wouldn't listen. Jack left the barn, and an extended negotiation began. For 30 minutes, 
Baker tried to reason with Booth, encouraging him to turn himself in, but Booth had already decided that he'd rather die than cooperate with the Union troops. Harold didn't share Booth's resolve. He wasn't ready to die. He, too, began to encourage Booth to turn himself in, which sent Booth into a rage. He told Harold, quote, Get away from me. You are a damned coward and mean to leave me in my distress. I don't want you to stay. Harold seized the opportunity. Loud enough for Baker's men to hear, he shouted, quote, I have no arms. Let me out. Harold didn't even make it out the doorway before Baker's men grabbed him and dragged him off. Without Harold at his side, Booth grew ever more reckless. He taunted Baker's men, announcing that they might as well shoot him because he'd never leave the barn alive. In an attempt to drive Booth out of the barn, one of Baker's men, Colonel Everton Conger, lit the barn on fire. Booth spotted the flames immediately and tried to stomp them out, but his mobility was limited by his broken foot. The soldiers kept their rifles trained on Booth through the cracks in the barn walls. They were given specific orders not to shoot unless it was necessary. Stanton wanted Booth to be captured alive. Unfortunately, one of those soldiers, Sergeant Boston Corbett, was notorious for bucking orders. Corbett, who suffered from severe brain damage due to mercury poisoning, was so uncontrollable that he'd been court-martialed and discharged from the New York militia for insubordination. His fellow soldiers couldn't have been surprised when he aimed his rifle at Booth's neck and pulled the trigger. Booth fell to the ground. Baker seized his opportunity and rushed into the burning barn. Five men carried Booth out as he slipped in and out of consciousness. He cried for his mother and called, quote, you have finished me. Baker initially assumed that Booth had shot himself, so he was surprised to find no gunpowder marks on Booth's skin or clothing. Corbett stepped forward and confessed that he was the man who shot Booth. He'd done it because, quote, Providence directed me. Corbett was arrested and taken back to D.C. to be court-martialed. The other soldiers rushed to save Booth's life. He needed to live to be questioned about his co-conspirators. The troops questioned David Harold as well. He claimed that he'd believed Booth was a Confederate soldier named Boyd. He insisted that he'd never heard of Lincoln's death, and also that he'd begged Booth to turn himself in as soon as he heard the news. The investigation had already uncovered enough evidence to prove his story false. Emery Parody, the soldier who questioned Harold, reported that Harold was, quote, young, green, weak-minded. I was sorry for him and have always felt that way. Booth would not die quickly or painlessly. He suffered an awkward fall after being struck by Corbett's round and was likely paralyzed. Like the man he had killed, Booth suffered while he waited for the wound to finally kill him. For hours, he continued to babble, but his words were unintelligible. The last statement he made that the soldiers understood was, quote, I die for my country. I did what I thought was best. 
A little after 7 a.m. on April 26, 1865, John Wilkes Booth took his last breath. It was 11 days after Lincoln's death, almost to the minute. Edwin Stanton didn't stop his investigation after Booth's death. Later that day, his investigators arrested Dr. Samuel Mudd, the doctor who'd treated Booth's broken leg. Like Spangler, Mudd insisted on his innocence. He had no way of knowing what Booth had done. However, Stanton's men argued that Mudd had several days to report what he knew after Booth departed, and he had assisted in Booth's escape by keeping quiet. In the following weeks, Stanton arrested Booth's father, Junius Booth, his brother-in-law, John Clark, and his close family friends, John T. Ford and Matthew Canning. Booth's older brother lost his role in a run of Hamlet at the Boston Theater because of the controversy. All of Booth's relatives were released within weeks. As for the other collaborators who'd been arrested, their trial date arrived quickly. Stanton had no compassion for the seven men and one woman who had played a role in Lincoln's death. Fearing he might not be able to secure convictions in a regular trial, he took extreme measures to guarantee that everyone involved would be punished. Even in the northern states, many citizens were Confederate sympathizers, and a standard jury might be sympathetic to the accused. Instead, Stanton had the collaborators charged in a military tribunal. He claimed that the conspirators qualified as enemy combatants due to their Confederate sympathies. Several members of Congress protested that the military trial was unconstitutional, but Stanton proceeded anyway. On May 12, 1865, less than a month after Abraham Lincoln's death, Booth's eight collaborators submitted pleas of not guilty at the start of their testimony. Over a month later, on June 30th, Edmund Spangler, who watched Booth's horse, was sentenced to six years in prison. Mary Surratt, Lewis Powell, George Atzerodt, and David Harold were sentenced to death by hanging. Dr. Samuel Mudd, Michael O'Laughlin, and Samuel Arnold were given life sentences. The results of the trial were deeply unpopular. Many people believed that Edmund Spangler, Samuel Mudd, and Mary Surratt were innocent bystanders with no knowledge of Booth's crimes. Even those who believed Mary Surratt to be guilty objected to the death penalty being applied to a woman. At that point, no woman had ever been executed by the U.S. government. In July 1865, Harold, Powell, Atzerodt, and Surratt were executed. In the eyes of the public, the guilty parties had been punished. For many of the people of the United States, the story of Abraham Lincoln's assassination was complete. But for the federal government, the struggle was only beginning. Coming up, we'll discuss the political implications of President Abraham Lincoln's death and how his assassination changed the world. Now, back to the story. Abraham Lincoln had multiple funeral services in various cities across the country. A mere four days after his death, on April 19, 1865, the White House hosted a viewing in the East Room. 
The next day, 600 mourners attended the funeral service in Washington, D.C. For 12 days afterward, Lincoln's body traveled by train with numerous stops across the country for more funeral services. On May 3, 1865, Lincoln's body arrived in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. The next day, Lincoln was buried at the Oak Ridge Cemetery. His final funeral and burial was attended by numerous heads of state, as well as by his widow, Mary Todd Lincoln, and his son, Tad. For weeks after her husband's death, the widowed Mary Todd Lincoln refused to leave her room in the White House. Even after Andrew Johnson took the oath of office as the new president and tried to move in his family, Mary refused to leave. Although widows of war received a pension from the government, there was no system in place for a widow to collect any compensation after the president's death. Lincoln hadn't left a will, and Mary Todd had no means of supporting herself on her own. Shortly after Lincoln's death, Congress voted to gift Mary with the remainder of Lincoln's uncollected salary for the year, $22,000, worth about $340,000 today. Possibly motivated by grief, Mary went on a spending spree and soon found herself destitute again. She continued to appeal to Congress for a pension, but in the wake of the president's death, they had more important legislation to focus on. One of the key political issues of Lincoln's second term would have been the Reconstruction. Lincoln led the North to victory in the Civil War in part by destroying the Southern economy and infrastructure. Now, the government faced the challenge of rebuilding the South and finding a way to integrate the newly freed slaves into society. In December 1865, the 13th Amendment was enacted, abolishing slavery. During the Civil War, Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which granted freedom to enslaved people in the southern states. The 13th Amendment extended the abolition of slavery to the northern states, including Kentucky and Delaware, the two remaining northern states with legal slavery. In 1866, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which ensured that all U.S. citizens held the same rights to own property, enter into contracts, and defend themselves in court, regardless of race. After the act passed, President Johnson vetoed it on the grounds that he did not believe black people deserved the same rights as white citizens. Later that year, Congress voted to overturn Johnson's veto. This was the first time in U.S. history that a presidential veto was overturned. The 14th Amendment, adopted in 1868, granted former slaves full standing as U.S. citizens. It also granted equal protection under the law, an important doctrine during the civil rights movement a century later. In 1870, the 15th Amendment granted the right to vote to black men. In theory, with this amendment, former slaves would be enfranchised, although in practice, Many Southern states required literacy tests and poll taxes to prevent black citizens from voting. Throughout his term, President Johnson continued to clash with the Republican-controlled Congress. Lincoln and Johnson were from different political parties, but they'd run together on a unity ticket as the Civil War came to a close in 1864. The Republicans could get behind national unity, 
but they didn't sign up for a Democrat president. Johnson had a particular issue with the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who was a staunch abolitionist. By 1867, Johnson began to fear that Stanton was plotting against him to replace him with an abolitionist sympathizer, such as General Ulysses S. Grant. Suspicious of his loyalties, Johnson fired Stanton in August of that year. Stanton reported to Congress that President Johnson had violated the Tenure of Office Act by improperly removing him from the position Lincoln had appointed him to. Congress responded by voting to impeach Johnson on February 24, 1868. Johnson's impeachment trial was a public affair. Senators sold tickets so the public could watch the testimony of 41 witnesses, 25 for the prosecution and 16 for the defense. After two months, Congress voted on the impeachment charges on May 16th. Johnson was acquitted by only one vote. After serving his tumultuous term, Johnson did not run for re-election in 1868. One of his last presidential acts was to issue a pardon for the surviving convicted assassination collaborators David Harold, Samuel Mudd, and Edmund Spangler. They were released from prison after serving four years of their life sentences. John Wilkes Booth's family continued to suffer for his crimes. For years, they received regular hate mail. The stress led Booth's brother-in-law, John Clark, to nearly divorce his wife, Asia Booth. Ultimately, John and Asia left the country to distance themselves from their family shame. In the months after his death, the U.S. government refused to release John Wilkes Booth's body to his family for burial. His brother Edwin repeatedly petitioned the government for the body, but was denied for four years. Finally, on February 15, 1869, Edwin received his brother's body. He feared that collecting John's remains would draw a crowd, so he met the undertaker at the back entrance to his business, inconspicuously in a disguised wagon, while thousands of Washington, D.C. residents returned home from work in the afternoon. That night, Edwin took John's body on a train ride back to Baltimore. He buried his brother in an unmarked plot in Greenmount Cemetery, fearing a headstone would attract vandals. To this day, no one is sure exactly where in the cemetery John Wilkes Booth is buried. Mary Todd Lincoln sank deeper into debt in the years after her husband's death. In 1870, she was granted a pension of $3,000 per year, worth a little more than $46,000 today. But it wasn't enough to keep up with her compulsive spending. Without Abraham around to balance out her personality, Mary suffered socially. She had always been an uncomfortable fit in high society. She was outspoken, dramatic, and attention-seeking, all traits that were considered inappropriate in women during the mid-19th century. The stresses of her public status as a first lady and the loss of her husband left Mary struggling to process her emotions, and her outbursts were met with disapproval and scorn. Mary's social ills were magnified due to the heavy expectations tied to the office of the First Lady. A later First Lady, Laura Bush, explains, I really have a lot of sympathy for her. She saw her husband assassinated. She 
lost her sons, all but one of them. I know she was disliked, but you almost can't help but have some sympathy for her because of what she faced as a wife and as a mother, you know, and as a first lady. Ten years after Lincoln's death, their oldest son, Robert Todd Lincoln, decided he needed to take drastic measures to keep his mother and her spending in check. Robert had his mother arrested on the morning of May 19, 1875, and brought her to a trial on charges of insanity the same day. Mary took chloral hydrate to treat her insomnia, a sedative that sometimes causes hallucinations. The side effects of her medication, coupled with a lifetime of eccentric behavior, led the court to declare Mary insane and have her involuntarily committed to an asylum. For a year, Mary mounted a legal defense from her hospital ward and finally overturned the court's decision on June 15, 1876. As a free woman once more, Mary left the country and the family that had betrayed her. After years spent traveling around Europe, Mary returned to the U.S. in 1880. Estranged from her old friends and her son, she became a recluse. She spent the last two years of her life living with her sister in Springfield, Illinois, rarely leaving her home. Mary Todd Lincoln died on July 16, 1882. It's undeniable that Lincoln's death changed the lives of the people around him and around the world. For the remainder of this episode, we'd like to look at how the United States and the wider world might be different if Lincoln had never been assassinated. Lincoln's vice president, Andrew Johnson, had very different political beliefs from the late president. While Johnson opposed secession, he otherwise identified with the Confederacy's ideals as a Southern senator and a former slave owner. Both Lincoln and Johnson agreed that convicting the leaders of the Confederacy for treason would only prevent the nation from healing. While Lincoln had no intention of executing Confederate leaders, he hoped to at least drive them out of the country under the threat of treason charges. Johnson, on the other hand, welcomed Confederate leaders back into society, allowing them to continue to advocate for their racist beliefs. Lincoln's Reconstruction Plan allowed opportunities for newly freed slaves to build a place for themselves in society. In addition to granting voting rights to black men, Lincoln also wanted to seize former plantations and gift the land to former slaves. Johnson had no intention of seeing either policy through. Presidential policy can't change people's minds, and Lincoln wouldn't have been able to legislate racism out of the United States. However, he might have closed the economic gap between white and black citizens by granting seized land to freed slaves. While Lincoln is rightly considered a great president for ending slavery, he had his flaws as a leader. Had Lincoln survived, the United States government would look very different from how it does today, separately from the issue of racial equality. During the Civil War, Lincoln exercised unprecedented political powers. He suspended habeas corpus, imposed martial law in border states, and allowed his Secretary of War to arrest anyone who criticized him in the press. If this trend continued through the Reconstruction years, 
Lincoln may have become known as the president who weakened the power of the Constitution. Thanks to the precedent Lincoln sets, U.S. presidents continue to invoke these practices as their rights during wartime. If he'd established that these presidential powers were acceptable in peacetime as well, the system of checks and balances would look very different today. Johnson's unpopularity with the Congress elected under Lincoln led them to invoke limitations on presidential powers. Johnson was the subject of both the first overturned veto and the first impeachment proceeding in U.S. history. Both of those procedures, which are still used today, were crafted during the Johnson administration. Because Lincoln was a Republican and shared many beliefs with his Congress, it's unlikely that his vetoes would have been overturned or that he would have been impeached. In light of Lincoln's tendency to expand the powers of the presidential office, the balance of power between Congress and the president would have likely shifted even further during Lincoln's second term. On a more personal note, Lincoln's survival would have improved the life of his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln. Throughout his life, Abraham supported and cared for her and defended her from social criticism. If he had survived, Lincoln would have stood by his wife's side, and she, most likely, would never be involuntarily committed to an asylum. The family of John Wilkes Booth also would have been better off if not for Lincoln's death. Even if John Wilkes Booth had tried and failed to kill Lincoln, the Booth name would not have become so infamous. His siblings and brother-in-law could have been spared arrest, loss of income, and the public shame they were subjected to. When John Wilkes Booth decided to kill Abraham Lincoln, he did so in an attempt to extend the Civil War and win more time for the Southern states to achieve a military victory. He may not have achieved those goals in the way he'd hoped, but his attack did inadvertently succeed in turning back the clock on the Lincoln's so-called tyrannical anti-slavery policies. By helping Johnson come into power, Booth inadvertently contributed to a culture of racial inequality and helped to keep the powers of the presidency in check. Besides his political goals, Booth was also obsessed with fame. With one act of violence, Booth ensured that his name would be remembered in infamy for generations after his death. But he isn't honored as a hero or a patriot or a great stage actor. John Wilkes Booth will forever be remembered as an assassin. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Dick Schroeder. 
Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 